John chapter 20. Glad everybody's here today. Um, thanks to Jason for kind of taking care of all those things. Um, excited to preach to you um, as I've preached this message to myself already a, a couple of times. And um, thinking about how we only have less than two chapters in this study left. It's taken us a year and four months, and we probably have four sermons left, I'm guessing, something like that. So um, as we move to the end of this study of the gospel according to John, just soak it in and, and take in what, what the Lord would say to us through his word. Um, and I'm really just going to give you five verses today, uh, verses 19 through 23, and um, the, what stood out to me as I first read through it a couple of times is that there are a couple of things here that are hard to understand. There are a couple of things here that are the cause of some controversy and debate over the years. Um, and I think what we will do is, I will mention those things, but I think the wise thing is to just really focus on the clear, full points that John gives us here in this text. And so, that's what we'll try to do uh, in this reading. So we're going to read John 20, 19 through 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted or forgiven unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the next few minutes our, our minds and hearts would be directed only toward you and toward your word. Father, may the words I say be, be from you and and Father, I pray that your spirit would lead us in the preaching and in the listening of this word. If there's someone here today who has never trusted in Christ, as CJ has done this week, I pray that seeing his example and most importantly hearing the gospel truth of Jesus Christ, they would come to believe in you even now. And for your church, I pray for sanctification for spiritual growth, and for spiritual assurance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look back in your Bible at verse 19. So it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So last Sunday, it was of course Easter, and we talked about John 20, the Easter text, and it is still the same day. First day of the week, that first Sunday, it's the day that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, expecting to care for the body of Jesus, and what did she find? The stone was rolled away, no body. And she immediately thought, well, somebody stole him. Somebody stole the body. 
She went and told the disciples. Remember Peter and John go running. They have a race to the tomb. They examine it. Where's the body? They go back home, and Mary has this meeting with, Mary Magdalene has this meeting with Christ, and these things happen here, and it's the very same day. It's that night of that same day. Now, I was looking back through this this week. There are at least five appearances of Christ on that day in the Gospels. Now, we don't get all those in John. You find them in other places as well. Let me give them to you quickly. Mary Magdalene in John 20 last week. Jesus appeared to other ladies in Matthew 28. It mentions other women there he appeared to. He appeared to two people on the road to Emmaus in Mark 16 and Luke 24. Luke 24 also tells us he appeared to Peter. And then, of course, here in our text, he appears to disciples. So I want you to think about this. These disciples gathered together in a room, and something's going to happen. Before we dive into what happens, I want to say this. Let's think about these disciples as a group of people who had been together for several years. That's what they were, right? And they followed a master. Now the master is gone. They are in a crisis time, a crisis mode. But I want you to notice, in their time of crisis, they did not split apart, but they came back together. Now, I think this is important. I think, I was trying to think of an illustration for this, so I have three of them. First, um, a marriage. Any of us that's been married for any amount of time knows that there are ups and downs, right? I'll be married 20 years later this year. There are ups and downs in a marriage. How about a family? Um, families go through different things. Sometimes there's falling outs, and you have to mend, mend fences and families. And then the third illustration is a sports team. Every good sports team has parts of their season where things don't go the way they want it to go. In all those situations, a marriage, a family, a sports team, a group of disciples, when things get rocky, if they are going to succeed, they're going to succeed by sticking together, staying together. And that's what these disciples did. And I went back and looked in John 15, and Jesus told them, when I leave, you must love one another. And in a sense, they were doing that, right? Being together. And in John 17, Jesus even prayed for their unity. And so we see that after, just days after the crucifixion, they are, at least in part, fulfilling his, his command to love one another and his prayer that they would stay unified just by being together in this room. And I illustrate that to us to say, church, if things ever get, when things get rocky, we must stick together, be united around Christ, and be united around the main things. I heard a song this week, it's called We Are One, and the chorus ends like this. It says, we are bound together by his blood. Let us walk in love, for we are one. The next thing I notice about verse 19 there is, they're in here in this, this house, and it says the doors were shut now, some translations will say the door was locked, and I think that's the full meaning here. It wasn't just shut doors, the doors were locked. Well, as you see in the text, why were the doors locked? I mean, why do we lock doors? To keep people out, right? Why do we lock doors to keep people out? They had locked doors because they were scared of the Jews. So, they were scared that the same people who came and killed Christ might come and arrest them and kill them. And so they found this place to go, they went in there, and they locked the door. Now, if we fast forward just a few weeks or months, these very same disciples are preaching to thousands, traveling to different parts of the world, sharing Christ in the midst of danger, and most of these guys even 
preached Christ all the way to their death, didn't they? Think about that. Within a few weeks or a few months, they went from hiding in a room with bolted doors to preaching boldly the gospel of Christ. What made the change for them to go from hiding and scared to fearless for Christ? Well, I'm going to give you four things that Christ gives them in this passage that I think changed them. And these four things, by the way, can also change us. Number one, he gives them assurance. Assurance is so important, isn't it? To be sure of something, to know that you know that you know, and I don't know if there's anything, I know there's not. The greatest assurance you can ever have is the assurance that when you leave this world, you'll be with God, right? You'll be in heaven, you'll be in glory. That's, that's the greatest assurance you can ever have. And Jesus comes to give these disciples who had just been through so much assurance. Three ways in which he did that. First, his presence. It says in that verse, verse 19, he came and he stood among them. Now, this is the first point of contention or debate in this passage because the doors were locked and it says Jesus came and stood among them. So the options I've read are Jesus simply walked through the door or walked through a wall. Another option is Jesus just, he did a beam me up Scotty from Star Trek where he just kind of just disappeared here and, and was in the, in the house, in the room. Other people have said a more simple answer that even though it says the doors were locked, he unlocked the door, or they unlocked the door and let him in. So there's all these different debates here, and here's what I do know. Whether it was miraculous or not, Jesus Christ was never going to be limited by a locked door, right? He was going to get in regardless, okay, if they didn't let him in. He's not limited by closed doors, and the main point of this verse is not how did he get in, the main point is that he came to give them his comforting, assuring presence. That's what he does for us too. I hope he does that for us today. His presence meant everything to them. Even if Mary Magdalene had come and said, hey, Jesus is alive. I mean, and, and she didn't say that. She said they took his body. But even if she had said that, they would have been like, we don't believe you. You're not trustworthy. How, why don't we believe you? They needed to see him. They needed the assurance that comes only from seeing their Lord. The second thing there is his peace. Twice in this passage, he says, Shalom, or my peace I give to you. Spurgeon said these were, at the time, faithless, cowardly disciples, and Jesus brought to them peace. Could Jesus have showed up and said, hey guys, when I was on the cross, where were y'all at? Could he have said that? Or, where's your faith? Don't you believe this is me? Where's your faith? He could have scolded them. He could have found fault with them. He could have rebuked them. And yet, Jesus walks to them and says, peace be to you. The third one is his proof. His proof. In verse 20, it says, when he had said these things, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, his hands and his side will come back into play next week when we, when we talk about Thomas. But he gave them proof. He said, hey, I'm here. It's really me. It's not a spirit, not a ghost. I am here. Again, these disciples were confused. They were afraid. They needed hope and assurance. And when Christ showed up and gave him these things, look at what it says in verse 20. They were glad when they saw him. Can you say that this morning, church? Can you say, I'm glad 
that I know Christ. I'm glad I'm able to spend time with my church family getting to know him more. Can we say that? Um, God wants us to have assurance. Uh, this same writer who wrote the gospel according to John wrote him an epistle, right? The first John. And I think if you're struggling with doubt of salvation, it is the best book to read. In 1 John 5, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And he goes on to say, I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. God desires that we be sure of our salvation. And he gives us a way, which I'll explain at the end of the sermon. Number two, not only does he give them assurance, he gives them a commission. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. Then he says this in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So he gives them this commission. Here's the mission you're going to be on. As the Father has sent me, so I will send you. Um, I've been a part of a few of those missionary commissioning services. Have you ever seen one of those before? I've seen it. I've been at some meetings before where there's like 20 missionaries across the field, across the stage, and they're all going to go all the way across the world. And it's usually a very special service as people pray for them and hear their hearts and hear all the different places they're going and, and what they're going to try to do for Christ. It's a very special thing to hear one person, much less a group of people, who are going to be sent out to do work for Christ. But no commission is as great as this one from Christ's lips. When he says, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. Back in John 17, 18, Jesus prayed and said, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Now here's something interesting I want to point out to you that I know that I've mentioned, no, I don't know that I've noticed this before. But in Luke 24, verse 33, discussing this very same evening, this very same situation, Luke says it was not just these disciples there. Luke mentions that there were other disciples there. A group of disciples that were gathered together. He says it was the disciples and then others in Luke 24. And so I take that to mean this and, and try to apply that to us. The commission to go and make disciples, the commission to go into the world for Christ is not just given to a select few spiritual people, not just to pastors, not just to deacons, not just to the super spiritual, but everyone who claims the name of Christ is called to go into the world for Christ, as Jesus called them here. So then he says this, as the Father has sent me. Well, how did the Father send Christ? I read this somewhere at one time, and I, had, I found these notes recently, but Jesus was not sent as a philosopher, right? Although he had the greatest philosophy of all time. Jesus was not sent as a, an inventor or discoverer, although he could have invented and discovered. Jesus was not sent as a conqueror, even though he was mightier than Alexander or Caesar. Instead, Jesus was, was sent to teach, to live a humble life, and to suffer and rescue sinners. That's how Jesus was sent. He said, I, I came to be a ransom to lay my life down as a ransom for many. So as I have, the Father has sent me, so I send you. How, do we, how are we sent? How are they to be sent? We're to be witnesses to Christ. We point people to him, not to ourselves. This great commission is so important that we find a variation of it in every gospel. I want you to listen to them. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now look at, listen to Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24, he says, you are witnesses of these things. We just mentioned John 20. Also in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will be witnesses. Time and time again, the Bible and the Gospels emphasize that Christ's disciples are sent out. So how do we apply that? Well, the, the way we've kind of developed here to apply that is our discipleship pathway. And so we tell people, we tell each other, anybody that would come to our church, the first thing you need to do, the most important thing you need to do, right, is to turn to Christ, to repent and believe and follow Jesus. That's the most important thing any of us could do today, is to turn to Christ for that salvation that he offers us through his sacrifice. The second thing we tell people is, once you know Christ, it doesn't stop there. You need to join a church, a local church, and you need to be a part of that local church, serving it and helping in that church. The third thing is to invest in the church and allow the church to invest in you. And the way we do that here most, uh, to me, bestly is Wednesday nights as we meet back here and discuss the word together, talk about life, pray for one another. And then we say this, influence your crowd. Be not only someone who serves Christ in these buildings, but everywhere we go. If we aren't pointing people to Jesus and trying to help them become devoted followers through some pathway like this, then what are we even doing? Every church that does not have a plan from Scripture to make disciples is basically just a social club. And there are many churches like that today. And so our plan may not be perfect, by the way, although I think there's scriptural things in all this. Our plan may not be perfect. I may not always describe it perfectly. But we have a plan. We have a process. And we pray God will bless it. We don't want it to be a, just a social club. We want to point people to Christ. He gives them assurance. He gives them and us a commission. Number three, he gives them the spirit. And if you're taking notes, put an asterisk beside that, beside the word spirit. I meant to put an asterisk up there and I forgot. Verse 22 is another point of contention. And the two options, I think, are Jesus breathes on his disciples, and at that moment, the spirit indwells them. Second option is, Jesus breathes on them and says, you will receive the Holy Spirit to preview the fact that they would soon after receive the Holy Spirit. There's actually a couple other options too. but So verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Ghost. A couple things about this verse. First, the word to breathe here, is the same type of language used way back in Genesis 2 when it says the Lord God breathed into man's nostrils the spirit of life or the breath of life. It's also the same type of word, although it's a different, different language, same type of usage, as Ezekiel 37, 9, when we have the, the vision of the valley of dry bones, where there are these dry bones, the breath of life is breathed into them, and they come alive. And so this idea of Jesus breathing is a life-giving, spirit-giving 
Remember Nicodemus, John chapter 3, you must be born of the Spirit. Life-giving, Spirit-giving breath. This is a picture, this breath is a picture of being born again. So, what do you think? It's interesting. Several scholars that I trust believe on both sides of this issue. One, which is R.C. Sproul, says, I believe, verse 22, is an object lesson of Christ, previewing what would come at Pentecost. So I begin to look and think, why is that possibly true? And one, two things that I'll point to you. John 16, Jesus said to the disciples, I must go away and be with my Father so that you can receive the Spirit. Another place is in Acts 1.8. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. Again, interesting stuff to debate, to discuss. The main thing here, to me, is that whether they received the Spirit that moment in that locked room or a little bit later at Pentecost or at some other point in time, the main thing is not when they received the Spirit, it's that they did receive the promised Spirit. The main thing for me and you is not when we come to know Christ, it's that we have come to know Christ. And that we are empowered by the same Spirit that Jesus gives them, we're empowered by that same Spirit as well. Not only to know Him, but to serve Him. Number four, He gives them the Spirit and He gives them authority. Last verse, verse 23. Again, possibly another point of contention. It is among some. Jesus said, if you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. So, does this mean after church, you can come up to me in the back and say, listen, this week I gossiped. I gossiped about Nick this week, and I need you to forgive me. And I can say, you're forgiven, my child. Go, go peace and go. Am I going to say that? No, because that's not what we're talking about, right? That's not what, what we do, right? We're not going to go and sit in a box back here in the back and you confess your sins to me through a box, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess we could, but I'm, I can't forgive them, right? I can listen to them. I can listen to your sins. And James does say we should confess our faults one to another. So there's a pattern for confessing our faults, but we understand this does not mean that these disciples can go out and pronounce forgiveness in the way that Christ can. As a matter of fact, nowhere in Scripture, and I looked this week, nowhere in Scripture do we see a, a pattern of absolution for sins, as we see in uh, the, the Catholic Church, for example. Nowhere in these epistles to the pastors or to the church do we find that. But here's what I think this means. Because it has to mean something, right? If it doesn't mean they can actually forgive sins, what does it mean? I think it means this. They can proclaim that people are under condemnation because of sin and that Christ is the way to pardon. So they're not saying you're forgiven. They're saying in Christ you're forgiven, right? So you might come to me and say, I gossiped about Nick this week. I'm not going to tell you, well, you confess that to me, you're forgiven. I'm going to say, if you confess to Christ, you'll be forgiven. And then I would go to Nick and tell him he apologized, right? <laughs> Listen, in Acts 2.38, Peter stood up and said, Repent and be baptized, 
in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is what this verse, that's this verse lived out. He says, if you repent, you'll be forgiven. Someone said, we have the power of declaring with authority the Christian terms of pardon. We have power, we have the power of declaring with authority the Christian terms of pardon. And so this is why, this is one reason why we do the confession of sin time in our service. I know for many of us, for most of my life, I've not done a, a set confession of sin time in service, although historically churches who believe like us actually have done those throughout history. Um, but one thing I like about it, even if it feels awkward to you, even if it feels different to you, even if you're thinking like, why are we doing this? Here's one good thing about it. It's causing you to take 30 seconds or a minute to pause and say, I might be a believer, I am a believer, but I still sin. And I still need to confess that sin to Christ and ask forgiveness. And when we finish that confession time every week, we, we use a different verse today, but we often use 1 John, don't we? And Jason or I will tell you, we're not forgiving you of your sin, but we'll tell you, if you confess your sins, right, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And we're putting, it's called the assurance of pardon. We're assuring you, not that you're pardoned, but we're assuring you that if you confess your sins to Christ, you can be pardoned. And that's what I think Jesus says here to these disciples. Guys, you're going to go out and you're going to show people the truth of forgiveness in Christ. Let's move to our application. I'm going to take each of these four points and give you an application point. So the first one is we need to see Christ daily through the ordinary means of grace. See Christ daily through the ordinary means of grace, which we often talk about these three things, the Bible, prayer, and church. The assurance of who Christ is in your life will be strengthened or weakened based on your daily use of these three means. I believe this because I've seen this in my life. When I am not in the Bible like I need to be over the course of my life, I'm more likely to doubt some things or believe Christ less. If I'm not spending regular times in prayer, I'm more like, likely to be faithless instead of faithful. If I'm away from church, we've talked about this, sometimes I can miss one Sunday. I'm like, ugh, it feels weird, right? Because these three things are basic things that God has given us, and I would say the most foundational things, to help us grow spiritually and at the same time be assured of our salvation. Now, you can say, well, I can read the Bible every day, I can pray every day, but I can't go to church every day. And that's true, we're not going to have services every day. But I feel like I go to church every day. You may explain. Every day, not every day, some days, my wife and I will have a spiritual talk about something. We don't even plan it. It just comes up. We talk about it. Almost every day, somebody from our church will text me and say, what do you think about this? They'll ask me a question or throw out a comment. Sometimes Jason and I will text and bounce scripture off each other. So even though we're not together with the whole church, throughout your day, whether it's a friend, a coworker, a, a loved one, you can still express these means of grace by spiritual conversations other believers for some people assurance of salvation will not come because they don't actually know Christ 
But for some people, they are truly saved, but that assurance will never remain because they have separated themselves from the ordinary means of grace by which God intends us to be assured. Does that make sense? If you separate yourself from those three foundational things, you're going to doubt your salvation, I believe. Number two, we need to show Christ daily through words and actions. I think you guys know this, but I'm not a good cheerleader. I'm not a good hype man. Right? I'm not that pastor to get you hyped. I can't get up here and make a speech, run out the back door like, let's go, and you're all going to follow me out running. That's not going to happen, right? If I, gave, if I all of a sudden gave a big speech and ran out the door, what are y'all going to do? Well, where'd he go? Are we done? You know, nobody, nobody's following me out that door. I believe, you know, maybe Jesse, but I would make an awful cult leader. I just would. Nobody would follow. I'm not a good hype man, but, and I don't think that's my job to be a hype man, but I think we overcomplicate witnessing or being a testimony or following the great commission of Christ. We overcomplicate it. We overthink it. And so I want to, if I can be a cheerleader for a second or a hype man for a second, say this. We need to allow our relationship with God to impact our everyday life. That's very simple, right? Or that's simplified. You don't have to go out and say, you know what, I'm about to go to the gas station, and whoever pumps gas next to me, I'm going to share the gospel with them. Now, if you do that, that's cool. I've done that before. It can be scary. You're like, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be at the gas station? But you can always start a conversation just say, man, these gas prices are high. Yeah, and then you go to you can share Christ. But instead of making it weird, why not allow our regular daily relationship with Christ come out of us in everyday situations? That might start as simple as, when I, when I say influence your crowd on our discipleship pathway, it might be this. It might be that I need to change the way I speak to my family. Maybe I need to speak with more grace and compassion and more spiritually to my family. Or pray with them. Or serve them in ways that have not been previously serving them. Maybe it's, there's this person at work that I just can't get along with. Maybe you you just figure out a way to be kind to them even though you don't really get along. Maybe there's, Again, someone else in your life that you, you just feel convicted and necessary that you would speak to them. Instead of making it weird, let what you know about Christ and what he's done in you come out of you. Here's an example. If you have a job where you see people, I bet every morning you say these words, good morning, good morning. Y'all say that? Teachers, I know you do. Several times a morning probably. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Somebody said to me the other day, at 2 o'clock, good morning. I was like, it's 2 o'clock. <laughs> Don't start over. How about this? As a simple word of truth, tomorrow morning at your job, someone walks up and says, good morning. You say, good morning. Hasn't the Lord blessed us with a beautiful day today? Somebody says, good morning. You say, good morning. Hey, how was church for you yesterday? They might say, well, I, don't, I don't go to church. Well, my church, we had a baptism. You know what that is? Again, using just simple things. Hope you have a great day. Hope the Lord blesses you today. Hope the Lord helps you today. Hope the Lord guides you today. 
Again, showing Christ daily through ordinary words and actions. Number three, our third application is to surrender or yield to the Spirit daily. We've talked about the Holy Spirit multiple times in this study. We can go back and pull from those sermons again, but I just want to say this. God has given us His Spirit. If we are a Christian, if we are a believer, Christ's Spirit that He has sent and dwells us, lives in us, and that Spirit, which is a He, He comforts us, the Scripture says. He convicts us. He enlightens us. You might think, I can't understand the Bible. Well, the Spirit's given to enlighten and help you understand the Bible. You might think, I can't love this person. Well, the Spirit is given to help you love this person. I can't be committed to Christ. I can't be committed to church. Well, the Spirit Christ gives us helps us be committed to Him. Remember Paul's words when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives through me. Understanding every day the Spirit can lead us but we need to yield and, and follow. Finally, number four, authority. Stand against sin and stand for Christ daily. To this point, I would say first, we must stand against our own sin, right? Fight our own sin, confess our own sin, try to overcome our own sin. And secondly, stand for Christ, be willing to help someone else who might be going through something that's sinful and bringing down their lives. See Christ daily through the means of grace. Show Christ daily through words and actions. Yield to the Spirit daily. Stand against sin. Stand for Christ daily. And as Jesus stood in that room and offered these scared disciples assurance, through this word today, I hope that he offers us assurance and, and also challenge to follow him better. Let's pray.